That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. A day late this week, I know, but it was a holiday weekend. I was actually out in Connecticut celebrating the wedding of producer Allie, who you often hear me refer to on this podcast when I say, you know what time it is, Allie, when it's time for the Spanish Inquisition. So she got married. It was an awesome wedding. It was a ton of fun. There was a small ESPN crew there that threw it down and... It was a blast, but I'm a week, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a day behind this week because of that. But hopefully you were patient enough because I love my guest today, Trey Wingo. Uh, really funny guy, really interesting guy, has been with ESPN since 97. Many stories to tell about how coverage of sports has changed, how his perspective on what people want out of the NFL and other sports coverage um, has altered over the years. And what he expects from his uh, new position, he's adding to his many roles at ESPN uh, by joining Mike Golick in the mornings as Mike Greenberg spins off to do his own show. So what's it going to be like taking on uh, the role of a new guy on a show that's been on forever, filling in, kind of replacing somebody who's beloved and has established a really great rapport? So we talk about that and how he's going to balance it all, how it changes his schedule, his sleep schedule specifically, getting up so early. And why he thinks it's so important to still uh, bring NFL fans not just debate and stories and discussions, but also uh, the nitty gritty of of the sport and how many fans don't really know that much about the NFL, the game that they watch and spend so much time talking about. It's a cool conversation. I love talking to Trey, and I hope you guys enjoy it. It's coming up next. That's what she said. Hey, more. That's what she said in just a minute. But first, a reminder that I want to hear from you. Whether you're a newbie or you've been listening forever, let me know how I'm doing by telling me who you'd like to hear on the show, what you like about the shows I've already done. You can tweet me at Sarah Spain. If you subscribe to That's What She Said in the ESPN app, we can send you an alert whenever we have a new episode. And if you listen to Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating and a review. Tell everybody how awesome I am, how much you love the podcast. I promise it makes a difference. And make sure you're subscribed to Apple Podcasts, too, so that we're easy to find next time. That's what she said. So happy to have Hal Chapman Wingo III, a.k.a. Trey. You hear him on uh, the radio regularly, digital platforms. You see him on your television all the time talking football. The host of NFL Live and the NFL Draft. He anchors Sports Center specials, contributes to golf at the Open, tennis at Wimbledon in the Open. Uh, used to do all sorts of other stuff with the company in a variety of places, including some NBA or sir, um, sorry, some women's hoops, and uh, we'll be starting a new radio show early mornings coming up soon. Thanks for making time for me, Trey. Spain or whatever you need. How are we? Your resume is long, and you're adding a new responsibility, and we will get to that in a little bit. But I want to start at the beginning. Um, I was intrigued to discover that. First of all, I learned a couple of weeks ago that your real name is Hal and that you are a third, hence the tray, and that your father, Hal Chapman Wingo Jr., was the founding editor of People magazine. So tell me about growing up in that household with a, with a journalist like that. Well, it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, my dad worked for Life magazine for many years. Um, we, we moved to L.A. when I was very young, and then uh, for three years he was the bureau chief for Life magazine for the Vietnam War, and we lived in Hong Kong for three years. Wow. And so that was, uh, I mean, I was very young, but I remember it vividly. So that was, uh, that was an interesting experience. And we moved back to the States in uh, the early 70s. And uh, 
Life magazine folded uh, in a large part because it was a picture magazine and television had sort of taken over. So they, they kept my dad and two other guys and they said, come up with a new magazine. And the magazine they came up with was People. And, you know, to this day, and I, I think I'm safe in saying it all time because magazine business is, is slowly not doing what it once was. That's probably going to be the most successful magazine launch in, uh, in print history. Yeah. How long was he there for? He was there from the first issue until oh, he retired in, in uh, uh, March of 1996. Oh, wow. So very long time. And was it, had, do you think it's become a little bit more tabloidy now than it used to be? Or was it always, it, you know, because it sort of attempts in, in ways to compete with some of the Us Weeklies and stuff by being a bit more salacious, but it's always rooted in real interviews and facts versus speculation. Yeah, that, that has changed dramatically over the years. And that's one of the things that, that my father actually wasn't a, a huge fan of. But, uh, you know, you understand what, what people want to consume, I guess. So, you know, it started out, my dad used to say, look, What's on the cover is what sells the magazine. What's in the cover is what, what's inside the magazine is what keeps people coming back. Yeah. And that was sort of the philosophy, you know, that he wanted to do. And it was really the first, so, you know, that had some sort of celebrity-driven, uh, you know, weekly magazine about it. I mean, all those magazines, you're talking about Us Weekly and all those other ones, followed in, in suit because they saw how successful people was. So. Uh, yeah. You know, they and he got he got a chance to to bring it internationally as well because uh, they also they they launched a uh, an Australian version, but they couldn't call it People because there was already a People magazine in Australia, and let's just say it was more of the Playboy penthouse variety. <laughs> than, and, uh, naked than people. Going on. <laughs> yeah. So thank you. A lot of nakedness. So they named it Who Weekly in Australia, and he uh. was over there to launch that as well. So you know, it's it's been it's been really fun. It was fun growing up in that. Uh, in that household. And, you know, whenever I had a day off from school or whatever, I would, on our teacher and service day, I would always come in with my dad to the Time Life building, which is no longer the Time Life building, sadly, right across from Radio City and 30 Rock and sort of bang around the offices, which was a blast. So did you live in New York or was that all in Greenwich and he commuted? Yeah, he commuted for 26 years, took the train in. Wow. For people that don't know, Greenwich is the first town over the border uh, in Connecticut. So it was a, it was a, it was an easy hop on the train and we did that for 26 years. Did your mother work? Uh, no, she was a school teacher for a while, and then uh, when we got a little older, she went back and and did a little of school teaching as well. But she was basically there with us, uh, trying to make sure we didn't kill each other. How many of you were there to kill each other? Uh, just me and my older sister, and she uh, took great joy in, in inflicting all kinds of emotional <laughs> and physical pain upon me. <laughs> so, when you're uh, living in Greenwich and you're growing up, let's say junior high, high school, what did you want to do? I wanted to do this, believe it or not. Um, funny story, you know, as, as uh, we've been talking, I'm just down here for the U.S. Open. I'm heading back to Bristol for the start of the season on Thursday night. Um, and I ran into a guy at the Open that was, I went to high school with, and we did like a weekly sports show in high school. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, it was called, we were really creative. It was called the Sports Spot. I mean, hey, wow. we, were ground, we were groundbreaking. Yeah. Uh, and, and we also did play-by-play in color for, for our high school basketball team. So I, I always thought that I wanted to give this a try. Were your parents particularly into sports, or what do you think got, gave you the bug? You know, that's a great question, because my dad was not. He's not a sports guy at all. My mom was not. Uh, my sister played sports, and I played sports growing up. I just thought, I always thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I mean, I, I can remember when I was really young, even back, you know, sixth, seventh grade, 
I was a huge football fan back then, specifically the NFL, but even more so than college. So, I, you know, I can't tell you what drew me to it, but I've always enjoyed it. I've always loved watching it. And I've always loved playing it at a very limited uh, basis of competence. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I've always enjoyed sports almost more than anything else. That's funny because my parents weren't into sports either. Um, I think, you know, I was six feet tall by the time I was 12 and I was just beating bitches up. And I was like, this is awesome. I love beating people at things. And then Michael Jordan was going on and I was like, oh, it's really fun to watch him beat people at things. And then eventually I I fell into all of the sports. But it is interesting. There are not very many that I've met who have a similar experience to me where their parents didn't take them to games or talk to them about stuff in ways that really ignited it. Um, what What sports did you play? Oh, I was a very limited uh, high school, uh, junior high school quarterback. Uh, the only thing I could do with any real acumen as a kid was I was a, I was a pretty good skier. I was a ski instructor, and I raced a little bit, but that oh, was about totally it. I can totally see that. I'm just I'm just <laughs> picturing what's what's thing. well what's the '80s movie? It's is it where the guys got you know uh, better the, off dead? Yes, better that's exactly how I picture you. Back? Yes. Yeah. Nobody rides the K twelve, and there actually That's... was there was a, a trail at a at a mountain we grew up in that we used to call the K twenty one. You know, so when he, when that movie came out, and forgive me for totally going totally off the rails, but that movie and another a couple of other ones, uh, including uh, One Crazy Summer, were produced by a guy that uh, I went to high school with named Savage Steve Holland. He was a Greenwich kid, and if you look at all those John Cusack movies, they were Greendale, New York. Or yeah. Greenville, California, huh. all playing off uh, the Greenwich thing. And all of his main characters were playing off different variations of you. Well, I would like <laughs> to think that that is probably not true, but I'll <laughs> run with it for this for this particular podcast. <clears throat> all right, so you're a ski instructor. You gave up football in high school, or did it give up on yeah. you? Yeah, uh, no, I was retired. Some people retire. <laughs> I was retired. Yes, yes. Sarah, okay. It, I was the opposite of you. Okay, you were six feet at what thirteen? Yeah. Okay, I, I grew three and a half inches in college. I oh, was wow. a proverbial late bloomer. Yeah, wow. I, was, I was under six feet tall when I went to college. My, my dad grew four inches when he was 16, which I thought was very late. But college, you yeah. must have felt a, 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 a new lease on life getting that. Because well, what I'm, are you, 6'3", 6'2"? Yeah, I'm 6'3", six, six, yeah. So, yeah, high school high school class and gym, not so much fun for this guy. <laughs> You're, you're, yeah, you were, a, you were a rec league champion though. Once you got those extra couple inches, um, oh, so you I go was, to I was an yeah. star. There you go. Um, so you go to Baylor. You're in a fraternity. You mm-hmm. are studying communications. Tell me about a uh, college Trey well, Wingo. Uh, I would say he was less than dedicated to the task. Um, <laughs> I think everyone I on my podcast there, says I'm... that I'm very concerned about what message I'm sending people with all my very successful guests no, who didn't try. No, the, well, the, the message is that don't get boxed in. Uh, you know, right. it, it's not too late to, t- to turn your life around. Um, there you go. Yeah, I changed. I changed my major five times. Oh boy! In in college, and once two months before I graduated, because they said if you. If you are graduating as this, you need another lab science. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm not graduating as that. So what can I graduate as? So, oh boy! I was wow! Just, it was just time to it was just time to get out. So I did what I could do to get out. Why did you choose Baylor? Um, well, that's a great question. Uh, my whole family is originally from Texas. My dad is from San Antonio. My mom's from Texarkana. And uh, you know, we my vacations in Greenwich. You know, people in Greenwich, you know, they summer as a verb, you know. They yes, go to the of course, the Hamptons. Whatever. And... Exactly. In Nantucket, they do all these things. 
we got in an unair conditioned car and drove five <laughs> days down to Texas to see all our relatives. And that was, you know, fun times. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. It just was sort of ingrained in me as a kid. And uh, my sister went there. My, my, a lot of my cousins went there. My aunts and uncles. It was everybody at my, uh, in my family went there. My, my mom and dad. So it just was sort of a, a family thing. So you were a legacy and they squeezed you in. Pretty much like Ken Dorfman. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, so you graduate with a degree in communications, which you uh, landed upon by chance. Um, but yes. you knew what you wanted to do. The, the the changing of the major was an attempt to decide on something maybe more realistic or less difficult, or was that always still a major that was sort of geared towards ending up in sports? I would love to that all of that is true, but you were giving me far too much credit. <laughs> when, I, when I graduated, I wanted to do it in high school, but when I graduated from college, I was determined not to do it because hmm. I saw all, you know, I, I saw all these people that I knew that were just barely getting by and, you know, working long hours, nights and weekends. And I'm like, well, screw that. I'm not going to do that. So I went and got a job as an account executive as a, for a PR firm in Washington, D.C. Okay. Uh, called Rogers and Cowan. And uh, I, got, I had a great little row, uh, row townhome apartment in Glover Park, which is a nice little area just north of, of Georgetown there, and went into office every day. And my job was to, you know, we had corporate uh, people that were paying us money to promote what they were doing. And so I would talk about, you know, hey, make sure when you, when you write this article about the great uh, Mexican muralist Diego Rivera coming to town, make sure you slip in that it's presented by the Ford Motor Company. I mean, that was, <laughs> got that it. was my job. Yes. And it was just awful. I was terrible at it. I hated it. Um, and uh, after about four months, I moved back home into my parents' basement. And I got a job as a page at NBC at 30 Rock. And when I mean a page, like Jack Kenneth the on page. the show, 30 yeah. Rock. Yeah, yeah. I was giving guided tours of the building and uh, doing all that kind of stuff. And uh, But it was really fun because it was a bunch of kids right out of college that didn't know what they wanted to do. And we gave, like we said, guided tours. But get to work on, like, this sounds bad now, but at the time, you know, the Cosby Show was the number one rated show right. in America. Right. And Phil Donahue was taping in uh, our studios. And you got to work on Saturday Night Live and go to the mm. cast parties. So it was, it was really a lot of fun. David Letterman was in there. My first Oof. big break, I, was, I got to be the elevator guy for Letterman. And the elevator really? guy is you, you, you take people up from the lobby to the fifth floor or the sixth floor, I can't remember now, and give them the rules. So I had this great little spiel of the rules, and I ended up with a little joke that was an old Monty Python joke about Rule 6. There's no Rule 6. Ha, ha, ha. Nice, nice. Have fun. But it paid off because uh, about a year after that, I was out with this woman that I was trying to impress in New York, and we went up to this great old bar. I don't even want there anymore. It was either called the Tumble Inn or the Stumble Inn on 89th and 1st. And literally, that's what you did at 2 a.m. It, it was the bar of last resort. So you just stumbled in after a night of debauchery and you finished your night. So I'm walking in with this woman that I'm trying to impress into the stumble in. And this guy stares at me in amazement with eyes as big as saucers. And he looks at me and goes, I know you, you're the elevator guy from Letterman. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, I was like, I don't know if that's going to impress this woman or not, but uh, that was, the, yeah. that was the first thing he said to me as he came into the bar. So you were actually on the air. As the elevator uh, guy? No, well, uh, no but yeah, that guy had just times, been around the, he, he the just building didn't enough. Remembered my spiel in nice. the elevator. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So you had a you had a memorable shtick and you uh where did you go? How did you get into the, the sports gigs from the page system? Was it through NBC? 
a little bit. You know, I got I got the chance to put a demo tape together, uh, and I sent it out to a bunch of stations all across America. And uh, you know, one took a chance that it was a it was a tiny station in Binghamton, New York. Uh, and uh, so that was my first on air job in 1988. And uh, ironically enough, and you'll find this interesting, when I got to Binghamton, uh, you know who else was in Binghamton at the same time? Carl Rabich. Interesting. Okay. And, and another guy named Bill Pito, who used to work for ESPN. Now he works for uh, MSG or SNY. I can't remember what it is in New York. Uh, he does all the Ranger stuff. But the three of us at one time, Carl, Bill Pito, and myself, were all in Binghamton, New York. And for about eight years or ten years, really, or even longer, all three of us were, worked at ESPN together. So that was yeah. kind of bizarre. I, I love thought. that. That's like when you go back to see the old uh, pictures of improv groups and you're like, how did all these people come from this one group, you know, and they're all super famous movie yeah. stars. Yeah, that's not quite what the Binghamton Sportscasting <laughs> Hall of Fame is like. But, but Close I don't enough. Think there are any pictures commemorating any of us there? But right. yeah, I understand what the larger point you're making. Yes. Okay, so you went from Binghamton and then you became the sports director in Pennsylvania? Yeah, I was uh, worked at, uh, at uh, WFMZ Channel 69 in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Nice. And, uh, that was fun because I got to do Lehigh University play-by-play for football and basketball for a few games. So that was that was the fun thing there. Uh, but I was only there nine months when I got the next job, which was uh, working in St. Louis. And I just thought that was the biggest thing in the world mm. when I got when I got a chance to go and work in an actual city that had actual pro teams. And I'll never forget this. And that was a radio or a TV gig? That was t- that was TV. It was a, it was a sports director gig, and I did some. They did like five. They had the you know, five or ten games that they did at Lehigh University, uh, basketball and football. And no, the St. Louis one. Oh, the St. Louis one was TV. Yeah, TV. Like an anchor? The NBC affiliate there, yeah. Uh, but the funny thing was there about that one is that as I got that job, Carl Ravitch, who had gotten a job in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, when I was in uh, Allentown, called me and was like, wow, man, that's great. You, that's You're in St. Louis. It was like a top 20 market at the time. Yeah. That's tremendous, you know. And then I was in St. Louis for a year. I turned on ESPN, and there's freaking Carl Rabbit doing baseball <laughs> tonight. So I was like, hey, wait a minute. You beat me there. Yeah. <laughs> was that a goal for you? Had you looked at ESPN as sort of an end goal? It was, you know, because I'm one of the few here that actually grew up in Connecticut. So I remember coming home in college and turning on ESPN when they had, you know, like stock car racing and, you know, fast pitch softball and, uh, you know, Australian, rugby, Australian rules football. And, I was like, well, this is kind of cool, and it would be kind of neat to maybe, uh, you know, end up back home. So it was always kind of a goal. I mean, you know, you have this thing is you start out and you're like, look, I'll take any job I can get, and you're not really picky. Um, but when it became clear that that was a successful thing and, you know, maybe one day it would be nice for both of us to move back home, uh, that turned out to be really a good thing because my wife is also – uh, from Greenwich, so that was yeah. The few people who yeah, wanted to be in Connecticut, right? <laughs> exactly. Like, <laughs> Everyone I, else I is avoiding enjoy, it. I always enjoy when people come, you know, Bristol and move here for the first time. They're like, "Yeah, so where's the town?" I'm like, "You're kind <laughs> of in it." Gas station over there. I think there's yeah. a uh, there's a uh, Ruby Tuesdays and and hey, there's an ATM. So good luck. There you go. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about you saying you sent your tapes around. I mean, you did the old school way of doing things, which was you work in a couple small markets, you work your way up and then you right. become national. And even in the time that I've been in the industry, which has only been 
less than a decade of sports. And right before that, I was trying to do more acting and comedy stuff in Hollywood. Right. I started out with you were supposed to have black and white headshots. And then about two or three years right. in, nope, they want color headshots. And I started out with you have to mail them a VHS. And then it quickly turned into you have to mail them a DVD. So I had to buy a DVD burner to put my my uh, reel on and then burn right. them and send them out. And now it's all digital. And it's so, it's so funny to imagine you back in the 80s actually sending out VHS tapes and, you know, handwritten letters and stuff like that. It was such a pain, you know, and like typewriters before (laughs) before (laughs) your computers were there. And, of course, I did walk uh, both ways to school uphill and six feet. Of course, yes. But um, actually, you know, it's funny that you bring that up. I've forgotten. What what made the switch for you? Because I remember you you were trying to go the comedy and the acting Mm -hmm. thing. When did you decide, hey, I want to do the other thing? Um, I was there for maybe three years doing, you know, working in a restaurant, then working in PR and doing like small things. And then I went to a TV hosting boot camp that was like all weekend. And I had to host a fake show to practice teases and intros and outros. And she said, what are you an expert in? And I didn't have, everybody else was like interior design or entertainment news. And so I just did sports. I did a fake Chicago Bears show. She said, oh, you want to do sports? I said, no, there's no women in it. You don't get to be funny. And she was like, well, you could still try. And I was like, well, maybe I'll take my second city and my sports and my writing and everything and try to do it all together. And so I got a uh, class at UCLA Extension in TV sports reporting. And I was like, oh, I probably should have done this all along. And that was well, the end of that. It's worked out. So that, that's cool. I like I <laughs> yeah. like finding out people's stories, cause especially when there's a left turn. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, because I did not take the traditional path. Job, and I was like, this. <laughs> This stinks. Yeah, I actually worked in PR first, too. I was a PR intern at a sports company, which was totally random and not my choice. It was just I gave a speech at the graduation at Cornell, and one of the people was a trustee. And I said in the speech I didn't have a job. She said, here, you're an athlete. Work here. And then another PR job, another PR job. So I I took that PR path where I realized, oh, this is really boring unless you were interested in the client that you're repping. And I wasn't representing very interesting clients. It was like – Weird auto buy tell car telephone companies and weird weird stuff. Believe me, I get it. And the Mexican yeah. uh, muralist Diego Rivera brought to you by the exactly <laughs> exactly. Um, I also like to find out too because I feel like in our industry there are always the funny jobs and mine are always the worst. Did, did you ever do any actual odd jobs or was it straight from like were you always doing full time jobs? Um. Well, you know, I, yeah, right out of school, I did a couple of, like, uh, little weird things just to make a little money, but nothing, like, really out of the ordinary. The worst thing that ever happened to me was when I moved to Binghamton, and by the way, I was married at the time, uh, I lost, I got fired after two years from the worst TV station in America. Ooh. And it was my own fault on some level, because, you know, they were like, hey, you know, we really like you. You know, but they were you know, paying, making you any money, but, you know, we maybe think about paying you more if you wanted to stay. And I was like, well, you know, I really, uh, I'm trying to move on. I'm not sure how much longer I'm going to stay. So, by the way, which is rule number one, don't ever say that, okay? Kids, if you're listening, always say, oh, yeah, this is great. They're yeah, going yeah. to have something else. Rule right. number one, don't give them a reason. So they're like, okay. And then, like, three months later, they fired me. I'm like, mm. uh, well, you know, you're not, you're not committed here, so we're going to move on. And I was unemployed in Binghamton, New York, fired from the worst TV station in America, and I had to go down and collect unemployment insurance to make <laughs> catch the bills. And that was the only time I ever got recognized walking in there to cash a check. It was just oh. so humiliating. Yeah. It was bad. 
But you found your other job quickly enough that there was no, uh, you know, side gig at a restaurant for a little bit or anything. No, I, I actually, uh, uh, yeah, I, it came. It was only a couple of months, but it felt like four years. Yeah, I bet. So you get to ESPN at 90, 1997. How did you, they well, spotted you in St. Louis and they said, we, we need you? Well, that's the weird thing. Um, I got to St. Louis in November of 91, and I came back from doing a story about a local, I'll remember this as long as I live, but a local track star who was 15 and like break, she was breaking all these records for you know 18-year-old guys. We thought she was going to be an Olympic, Olympian at some point. And there was a note on my desk. You know, with those little, uh, you know, pink pad, notepads that said, hey, somebody called. And, uh, it was said, call Al Jaffe. And it was a 203 area code. Well, at that time, the entire state of Connecticut was the 203 area code. So I'm like, Al Jaffe? Who is this guy, Al Jaffe? Turns out Al Jaffe was the talent coordinator or recruiter for ESPN. And I never sent him a tape. Apparently, hmm. either somebody in town uh, had uh, it seen me or said something to him or uh, maybe uh, someone suggested that one of the other rival stations in town sent him my tape, which happens to get somebody out of town if they think, you know, they're, they're better than the competition and they don't want you around anymore. I don't I've know. I've never heard that, of that. That's fascinating. But, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, uh, you know, I, I got a call in 92 and they wanted me to come uh, do, do an interview and a, and, a, and a demo tape. But they said, are you under contract? And I said, yes. And they said, well, look, we don't interfere with people under contract. So you have to allow your station to let us talk to you. Otherwise, we, this can't go anywhere. It's all like, oh, it shouldn't be a problem because you guys are national. And, you know, I'm not the main guy here. I'm, the, I'm not the main guy. I'm the fill-in guy, so that shouldn't be an issue. And my station was like, yeah, no, sorry. We let you out. We got to let everybody out. And I'm like, you are freaking kidding me, man. <laughs> so that was in 92, and thankfully ESPN came back twice around. The second time they came around, we were, we were just about to have our second kid. It just didn't feel like the time to move, and, uh, and then they, they call the third time, and the third time was the charm. That's fascinating. So you get to ESPN, and you've, you've had a, a number of different jobs since you've been there, but always a, a lot of focus on the NFL. How do you feel like covering it has changed, if you think it has for you, your approach to it and what people want? Well, it's interesting because, you know, when I got here, I was an ESPN news anchor, and then I did SportsCenter, and I got to do baseball tonight and did the NBA for one year. But I was always a huge football fan. As I said, going back to my days as a kid, I, it was always my favorite sport. Um, and, you know, the year that they had me on the NBA, I was like, uh, it was just not my thing at all. It wasn't working. And I went in and said, look, man, I can't do this. we got to find something else. And, you know, that was the why, year they why, started. Why did you feel that way? You just didn't um, click? A couple, couple of things. Um, you know, it was, first of all, that, the show that I was doing was on at like 1 o'clock in the morning on ESPN2, and it was just with the kids, and it was tough, and I just I, I felt like I wasn't seeing them enough. Um, and I just, you know, I didn't, I didn't, at that time, I didn't like the NBA nearly as much as I loved the NFL. Uh, and, and so they started NFL Live in August of 2003. That was the first, uh, you know, that's been, and that's basically been my – my show ever since with a, with a couple of things added on here and there. And, um, you know, obviously things have changed with the NFL and the, and the NBA. I mean, the NBA is such a big part of what we do now. And uh, I obviously like it a lot more than I did back then. But um, the NFL for me has always been, you know, the draw. I've always loved the, the team concept about it more than anything else. And, you know, there's, there's 11 guys pulling together 
and you have to have that or otherwise you're screwed. If one guy misses an assignment, odds are you're toast. So uh, I've always sort of liked that part of it. And, you know, I, I liked it even before it became the thing. The thing, it was always yeah. my favorite sport. I mean, now it's crazy. Uh, you know, I mean, we, we live tweet seven on seven drills. You know, well, <laughs> I, I, it was you know Ben Mitchell Trubisky was seven of eight with an interception. Right, it's a it's a practice, man. I, I mean, I get <laughs> it. I always say pe- football is not our pastime; it's our national addiction. Like yeah. tomorrow night, we're going to get our first hit, and people are going to be really happy. <laughs> right, and we notice that more and more when we have you know moral conundrums, and we all admit like we can't help it. Yeah, the CTE, the hits, everything—it's really hard to watch, but we can't stop ourselves. It is an addiction. Um, I wonder all the and, and yeah. It, well, to that point, I mean, it's it, that has changed for me a little bit because you know my son played uh, football through college or two years of college, and you know he had a couple of concussions in in high school, and we were concerned about it. And it, you know, it, it it's a real thing, and it, it does it does take you back, and it, it makes you it makes you think. But it, you know. It, it's uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, I asked, I asked my son, I said, you know, what did you get out of football? And he said, dad, football is like life. Yeah. No one's going to give you anything and you get out of it what you put into it. And, and I thought that was a pretty good analogy. And, you know, I, I've talked to guys like, you know, Schlereth, who's not with us anymore. He's over at uh, Fox and Petty and Jeff Saturday and all these guys. And, you know, at the, the end of the day, and for the most part, you know, they're still healthy. And Herm, who, you know, is 63 years old and still looks like he could play tomorrow. Um, it, the weird part about it, Sarah, as, as you know from dealing with this, is that you can't tell. I mean, there are guys that have a concussion, and they're literally fine in three days. Then there are guys that have a concussion, and they're out for four to five weeks. Nobody knows yeah. how it really affects everybody, and that's the great unknown here. Yeah, <laughs> excuse me. Um, you mentioned a lot of those guys that you work alongside. I wonder at any point in your career, maybe early on when you first got onto the NFL side, um, did you ever feel intimidated by by working alongside people who had played for so long, or criticized for commenting and and after not being someone who played the game? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the way, the way I look at it, especially working with those guys, is I wanted to get their respect. I wanted them to think that I knew what the hell I was talking about without saying, oh, I know more than, you know what I mean? I, I wanted them to know that I truly appreciated the game and that I respected the game, you know? And I, I, I always used to say that it takes a certain kind of person to step across that white line because if you stand on the white lines on the sidelines, you understand what you should and shouldn't do. But when you cross that line and go onto the field, you have to understand that there are things that you will do on that side of the line that you would never think about doing on the other side of the line. And you do them knowing what may happen anyway. And uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for guys that are, that are willing to do that and able to do that. So how do you approach the different shows that you've done? I mean, you're talking about NFL in different spaces and pre- presumably similar audiences, but um, I know, you know, the insider show is gone now, but um, when you're trying to balance NFL live and, uh, the approach that you take to presenting information, has that changed at all over the years in terms of what people want? Well, I, I think that the one thing people want more than anything these days is access. You know, that, that's the thing that I've noticed. Uh, you know, and, and I, you see that more and more. Like we were just here at the U.S. Open, and, you know, you see these pre-match interviews now where they walk down the, the dressing room onto the court or, you know, you get a, you get a camera inside uh, you know, the scorer's tent at a, at a major where they're filling in 
uh, you know, their scorecards. I think more than anything else, what people want now is stuff that they that they can't that they can uh, that they can see besides the game. And I think that's mm-hmm. why Hard Knocks on HBO has been such a success. You get to go behind the curtain and see what, for the most part, what if it's what, what it's like. I thought one of the most interesting things on Hard Knocks this year is in I think it was the first or second preseason game. At the end of the game, Jameis was in there and he was falling backwards. Jameis Winston, by the way, the Bucks were on, on Hard Knocks. He's fallen on his butt and just throws up a pass in the middle of the end zone and gets picked mm-hmm. off. And, and he gets reamed out. Down the yeah. And screams at him. And the one thing I thought he said was great was, if that were real football, that's a BS play. And yeah. So the point was, I mean, I, I'm sure a lot of people like, see, I knew preseason wasn't everything people <laughs> yeah. were trying to tell me. Yeah. Was. I mean, there's the head coach saying, this isn't real football, it's practice football. People want to see that. They want to they know what goes on in the locker room. They want to see what happens between, you know, like Kyrie and LeBron, uh, you know, away from the court and what maybe led to the departure and what happens when they're trying to win against the Warriors. All that kind of stuff. I think people like going behind the curtain. Yeah, I absolutely agree. There's there's a lot more transparency because of social media and because of 24-hour coverage and all the different outlets and blogs and sites. So because of that, people want to feel like they get closer to the athletes. I think that's what's the tough balance now. And, you know, someone from, from your perspective that's been at the company for a really long time, I think can speak to, but you still, you know, feel and, and skew very young. How do you feel about that argument between <laughs> people still just want sports and highlights versus understanding that a lot of people get those elsewhere now in the moment? And when you get to a ESPN show, it's not just highlights. You have to give something else. Cause I think it seems like an, the age difference is really what dictates whether people think you really need to show just sports still or conversations and hot takes and discussions and debates. Well, that's a great that that's the great dynamic of the industry that I think everybody's facing. Um, I I believe at the end of the day, people tune in to us to to hear about sports. Now the question becomes, how do you hear about sports, and, and what are what do you want to hear about sports? You know, for me, like for example, NFL Live, which is you know it's not a it's not a day out. Show. For, let's take for example NFL Primetime. This is a great example of it. We still do NFL Primetime, and I'll be doing that uh, until they tell me I can't. Uh, and it's basically a highlight show the day after the games are played. Right. So essentially everybody's seen the highlights. So the, the approach we take on NFL primetime is you know what happened. We're going to try and show you why it happened or how it happened. And instead of doing like a sequential highlight or you're like this has happened in the first quarter, this happened in the second quarter, we'll go all over the map showing you things that worked or didn't work based on, you know, this play design or schemes yeah. that they were running. And I think that's one way to look at it differently. Look, by the time our show comes on Monday night or Monday after the Monday night game, which does a monster re-air, everybody knows what happened at all those games, but they still watch because I believe they're learning something. They're getting yeah. something from it that maybe they're not getting anywhere else. That Tim and Jeff Saturday and, you know, and Merrill back in the day and Mark Schlereth and all those guys can break down and say, look, because of what happened here, this allowed this to happen. And that's the approach that I think uh, – we're going to try and take, and I want to try and take, specifically when it comes to NFL highlight shows. Well, and it's incredibly useful because, you know, it's it's interesting. I've been thinking about this more because Levitard on his show has been talking about it, how the sport that we love so much and we watch so much of, most of us know so little about, right? And that's always right. felt difficult for me because I've been on a basketball court. I can tell you what a box and one looks like. I can tell you what the role of each player is on a basketball court. It's really hard for me to do that with football because I've never actually lined up. And right. I think it's fascinating how much we can be intrigued by by a sport and 
admittedly, even people who are analysts or experts or just, you know, talking heads um, don't always know everything. I, I couldn't watch a game and tell you if I thought the center did a tremendous job or not, right? <laughs> you know, I don't yeah, necessarily. Well, that's the beauty of it. Teddy yeah. Bruschi has a great line, and he said, every once in a while, take your eye off the Take your eye off the ball. Stop watching the ball and watch something else, and you may learn something. And it's true. Yeah. I mean, we're all fascinated, you know, quarterback to receiver, tight end, or running back, and then what happens. But if yeah. you can take, the, like, sort of a global view sometimes and see – I mean, that's why the, the all-22 tape is mm-hmm. the greatest because it's an overhead view of all the guys on the field, and you can see things that are shifting and happening – and that allowed – you see the big play, but then you're like, okay, well, how did that happen? Because, well, this guy was supposed to be here, and they – look, they, they ran three wide receivers in this one formation, and that drew the safety over, and then that let this guy open on the other side. And that's the thing I, I, on – I mean, this is very specific to NFL, you know, that I'm talking about here. But that, that's the kind of thing that I, that I believe people are still interested in. Absolutely. Does it ever frustrate you when you hear people talking that clearly don't know you know what I mean? Because I think yeah. it's it's the sport by far that I think people will talk about and have the least intimate knowledge of how all the gears work. I agree. Uh, and it, it, it can be frustrating. But, you know, another perspective, though, is that, look, at the end of the day, like, let's take the Super Bowl, which is always the, the highest rated show, you know, on television all year long. At the end of the day, as much as like people like me and to you and, and these guys are really into the game, what most people talk about the day after the Super Bowl halftime show and the commercials. So you, you have to you have to put it in some sort of perspective. Like right. for us, it's the greatest thing in the world. Like I, I'm still reliving three plays from the Falcons that if they had just done that, they could right. easily win the game and they chose not to do them. Most people are talking about Lady Gaga and what are yeah. the animals. Well that's the balance too, so, yeah. is if you get in too yeah. deep then you lose too many people, right? You so you can't you can't Correct. end up talking to just football coaches. Um, Correct. So. And and you have to understand that that's for the most part, uh, a lot of with a lot of the casual fans are. So let's talk about the new show. So November twenty seventh, you and Mike Golick uh, taking over the Mike and Mike spot. You've done the show a lot right. um, in the past, yeah. but now it's your spot for good. And you did a story. You did an interview at the New York Post, and you said we're going to talk about sports, and either you're going to like it or you won't. We could sit here and say yeah. we're going to do things that have never been done before. We're going to reinvent the media. That's not going to happen anywhere. That's a great approach, right? Like you're not. You're not reinventing the wheel. You just people will either like to hear you guys talk about sports or they won't. And I think is that pretty much setting us up to know that there's not going to be a lot of bells and whistles. It's just going to be a radio show. Yeah, I mean, look, there might be a few different things that we'll put on here or there, but I, you know, people are like, well, how is this going to be different? I'm like, I'm sure it's going to be that different. You know, I mean, it'll be Golick and I talking about the the hot topics in sports and the things that we believe people are interested in, and either that's with you or it's not good with you. I mean, I could, like like I said, I mean, oh, we're going to do this. It's never been done. I don't think there's anything that's never been done at this point. It's it's just right. either trying something again or doing what has been successful. So, look, Golick and I get along pretty well. The first ever NFL Live, believe it or not, was me, Mike Golick, and Brian Cox, of all people, in <laughs> August of 2003. So, you know, Golick and I go way back. We have a good relationship, and I believe that's a big part of it. You know, one of the reasons that Mike and Mike work so well is that they work together. There was great chemistry. Yeah. Uh, and I, I believe that uh, Golik and I have a have a have a good rapport. And and uh, look, it's either it's, you're either going to be okay with it or you're not. And I, I don't yeah. think there's anything I can say one way or the other that's going to persuade you. I mean, I believe that you know we're going to talk about the things that you care about, and we're going to talk about it 
in an interesting and informative way. Uh, I mean, will there be hot takes? Maybe. I prefer reasonably nuanced information and discussion. <laughs> I like measured takes. Is that, is that cool? <laughs> well, but, you know, but, well, what would happen is declarative statement that can really never be proven either way. Yeah, exactly. Get both sides riled up. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not doing that. So, yeah. You know. Well, you you also said in that interview, if we can be a bright spot in your day and maybe get things going on a lighthearted note, that's fine with me. Is that an indication that you guys are maybe going to try to stay out of the deep end and keep things pretty light in sports as escapism? Well, I I think that, look, let me be clear, neither one of us are afraid to go where the stories go, whether it's about, you know, the Colin Kaepernick situation or what's going on with all the the other protests or, for example, like some of the Cleveland – uh, first responders are now upset yeah. and they're not going to join them in a flag protest in a flag demonstration because they're upset about Cleveland players in a flag demonstration, which yeah. I thought was interestingly mm-hmm. ironic, but that's a separate right. issue. Uh, we're not going to steer away from that. But at the end of the day, why did you get into sports? Let me ask you, why did you get into this? Um, because I love sports. I love playing and watching and the everyday it's reality fun. show. Yeah. Right. It's fun. At the end of the day, if this were the same equivalent of fun as being a CPA, we'd probably have more <laughs> CPAs. You know, right. I mean, we're doing this because it's more fun than that. So I, I think absolutely we're going to try and be a, a, a lighthearted approach, but that doesn't mean we're going to steer away from any yeah. topics. You know, I've had to deal with my own alma mater's issues on Mike and Mike, yeah. and I'm happy to do so because it's been very, very bad. But you know, for the for the most part, most people I think look to sports as the thing that keeps them away from the real problems in their life. And we'll, we'll do that. But you know, there are times when those two things collide and we will absolutely deal with them. Yeah. How do you think the new show is going to affect your schedule? Is there something that you're doing now that people might have to accept that you're not going to be able to, because having a daily show is a drain. Yeah. Um, less happy hours, I think is the first thing. <laughs> or, or, or No, only happy or, hours because that's when you're going to be well, eating yeah, dinner. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say probably, probably just more happy hours in general than extended dance mix happy hours. Yes, there you go. No after hours. And that's a a hard thing for me. Like, I've always been a night person. Like, literally, I could stay up till 2, 3 very easily. So, um, but, you know, once you do things enough, you get into a a rhythm, and I'm sure it's going to be fine. Plus, as I get older and crotchetier, I get up earlier (laughs) anyway. So, really, they're just preparing me for my retirement years. Right. Did that? Did it take a lot of convincing? Because I'm a nighttime person too, and that schedule just sounds to me like such a killer. Yeah. Look, um, you know, this all started about a year and a half ago when they were like, "Hey, we," you know, because I used to do the show all the time when one of them wasn't there, and then for whatever reason that didn't happen. Uh, and, and then they came to me last summer and said, "Hey, we'd really like you to be the permanent fill-in. Let's work on that." And so we did that, and of course, then you started hearing some things that there might be some changes, and I'm like, oh, I wonder if that's because of this. And so I sort of had a feeling of what was coming before they actually presented the idea. Look, I've been, it'll be 20 years for me at ESPN in, in, uh, in November, on November or middle of October, and I'm very happy to have been able to be here that long and, and do the things that I really love doing, the draft and the NFL and the golf and the tennis uh, the Wimbledon the last two years has been a blast and you know, the U S open. And when we had the British open, it was wonderful. Um, so every once in a while, I think it's, it, it's a good thing to, to sort of get a reboot and start over again. And I think uh, Gola feels that way. And, and, uh, and I feel that way. So it, the idea that 20 years in, you can, you can have a, a new challenge, I think is a lot of fun. And I, I'm really looking forward to that part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
So I, I was watching this um, clip of you and Michael Smith. I guess he named every Super Bowl MVP since yeah, the beginning, and people yeah. were impressed. And then you went on to name not only every MVP but every single score, and in some cases the defining play, and in some cases the stadium it was played in. Do you have a life? Like how do no, you do that? No. Congratulations. <laughs> you nailed it. Ten minutes to Wapner, I'm an excellent driver. I mean, yeah. that, that's, my, that's my one party trick. I, I don't know. They, it's just – Look, I, it's like you said, I just, it's always been there. The, the love of the game for me that way has always been there. And it's been specifically about the NFL more than college. Uh, it's just It was ingrained in me from the first time I ever saw a game. I can't explain it any other way. Now, was that something that you intended to – you sat down to memorize or you just sit no, at home and watch old just, Super Bowl docs? And... No, they're just I, – I, you know, I think we've discovered how I was able to graduate. Uh, yeah, you know, cramming was a really good thing. <laughs> good, for good me. memory. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I it just they're in there. I don't know why they're in there. I mean, like I'll give you an example. <laughs> we were down here doing stuff at the U.S. Open, and somebody was mentioning Tom Rinaldi. Asked me, "Hey, what's the weirdest thing you ever saw happen at the U.S. Open?" And I said, "Well, there was this match in '88 when Andre Agassi and Jimmy Connors were playing, and some guy yelled out of the top row of the stands, come on, Jimmy, beat this guy. He's a punk. You're a legend.'" And he's like, "No way." And I said, "Yeah, go look it up." So we found it on YouTube. I don't know why that's still in my head. I can't explain <laughs> it. There's no reason for it to be there. It's yeah. just there. But that you know? serves you it well because I have trouble with that sometimes. I'll be like, oh, that happened four years ago. I can't remember anymore. And then everybody else will yeah. say, it was this game and this, and I was here, and I was sitting in this seat, and I'm like, oh, man, I don't, I can't. And I have a good memory, just not for stuff like that. It's, I'm sure it has Well, Dick, Darren Woodson always tells me, you remember my career better than I do. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Probably. Yeah. Um, well, and the other thing that is always notable that I bring up almost every time I speak with you is the show where you guys did all the lines from Princess Bride. And if people haven't yeah. seen it yet, they can Google it. You just Google uh, – uh, I think you can just Google Trey Wingo, Mark Schlereth, Princess Bride. But um, I suggested yeah. that, that Caddyshack should be the one that you do next. So I'm I'm just putting in a bid for that again to start thinking about it. I will. I promise. But, again, the great thing that made the Princess Bride thing happen was none of us – it wasn't planned, you know? Yeah. Uh, Ted – Teddy said something on that show that made Mark and I both die laughing. He was talking about the corners for Seattle. And that was when they had, you know, uh, Richard and Cam Chancellor and all those guys were there. Not Cam's a safety, obviously, but he was talking about their corners and their COUSs, corners of unusual size. Well, you know, obviously we both knew that that means he's a Princess Bride fan. And I knew yes. that Mark was a Princess Bride fan. And he, I was, so then it just became a thing. I mean, it wasn't. It wasn't a scripted. It wasn't a let's do it. It just became, okay, how many can you say and how many can I say and can I get the last one in before you get yeah. the last one in? Uh, it's and so it went good. on for an hour, and it was, yeah. it was a lot of fun. It's so good. As I mentioned, I was on vacation in Costa Rica. We flipped on ESPN getting ready to leave. I heard <laughs> one of the lines, and I said, oh, my God, that was a Princess Bride. That's funny. And then I heard another, and then I just got glued to it, and I was like, this is the best. Yeah. Um, well, I'm all sorry, right. Well, I before Costa Rica vacation. No, no, no. It was good. We had we we had we had a brief half hour to kill before we you know <laughs> zip lined or whatever we were doing. Uh, before I let you go, there's one more thing you have to do. And let's play the kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. The Spanish Inquisition. Nobody sees it coming. No one expects it. Yes. Number one, yeah, natural. Like yeah. That's right. Yeah. Natural talent you wish you were gifted with. Uh, honestly, I wish I could uh, hit a golf ball better than I can. I, I, I love the game. The game doesn't love me back. Are you terrible or just 
Oh, I, no, I'm okay. I mean, I, that, and that's the worst. Like, I'm okay. And they're, yeah, they're, but I'll you work very hard. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm really good. And then I'll play four holes where, like, I've never picked up a club before in my life. Yeah. And that's the frustrating part. Number two, your Desert Island album. You can only have one. Wow. Uh, and, I, and I guess uh, greatest hits albums are, are No, right that's out. allowed. That's allowed. Okay. I, well, I may go Stevie Wonder, Original Music Aquarium. Mm, nice. Good one. Number three, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Probably Justin Timberlake. Mm, good one. Because, well, think about it. I mean, he's really funny. He sings. He composes. He's an actor. And he's good at golf. That's pretty much yeah, he's... all you all you want pretty much amazing i'm seeing him in a couple of weeks he's he's on my list he's you know last week andy buckley said if he could be anyone it'd be you so i don't know if you want to you know did he well I, I think he was being kind because i helped him get on the fantasy <laughs> show so i think he was throwing me you a were, freaking bone yeah you were fresh in his mind i guess uh, uh number four forward. what's the most what's the most scared you've ever been Oh, uh, well, I'm terrified of heights, and uh, I was asked to scale down a building this summer in Hartford for uh, to raise money for uh, the opioid addiction. And I thought, no problem, I'll do it. And then, you know, you're in this harness, and they say, okay, now just lean over the edge of the building. And I'm like, I'm yeah. sorry, what? What now? <laughs> you just want me to just stick my ass over this and just, like, yeah. let the rope take me? That was legitimately terrifying. Really? All right. That's, yeah, that's would, not bad, though. It's not bad. Uh, number five, what would you consider your biggest failure? Um, well, those are probably too many to mention. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, guess, I, I guess I would say that I wasn't good enough to play longer in the sport that I loved in football. Because I would have loved – I would have loved to have been better at that when I could have played it. That would have been yeah. more fun. Number six, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? Ten minutes to Wapner. I'm an excellent driver. I, 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 <laughs> that's about it. I, I'm, the ability to re- recall stupid information uh, at, a, at a timely uh, notice sometimes yeah. can help me out of a tight spot. Yeah, for sure. And being like, like that's different than being a good BSer, but it's like remotely yeah. connected, right? Like you got, you got to be able to pull the right thing at the right time, whether it that's helps you work the room. smart or funny. It helps or, you yeah, work the room. for sure. Number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Uh, the size of my butt. <laughs> what? <laughs> I've always what's... felt like I'm a little bottom heavy. Too small or too big? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it like a hockey butt or is it like a dumpy butt? I've never looked um, at your butt. Sorry. Well, I've been. I, well, thank you. By the way, I always, I always wish I had a had a had a uh, you know a better better physique. I guess. Okay. All right. We'll leave it there. And finally, why wouldn't what, we? <laughs> what, what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you? Uh, uh, not that annoying. <laughs> the bar is so low. <laughs> uh, but that's the only way you can jump over it every day. There, that's so true. That's so true. Uh, awesome. Thanks for making time for me, Trey. Always great talking to you. Hey, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition, by That's the way. so true. Nobody expects it. Oh, and another thing. This week's edition of That's What She Said is a story from the undefeated.com. 
called Michael Bennett is an activist disguised as a football player. Obviously bringing this to your mind, not just because it's a great story, but in light of the letter, the open letter that he shared and his incident with the Las Vegas police. Obviously information on that will continue to come out. But I think his role as an activist and as a speaker of big on big issues, uh, I think that role is an important one even beyond this particular incident. And the story written about him is a really fantastic one about his work in different communities, his decision to stand alongside Colin Kaepernick and bring awareness to the injustice and inequalities in police treatment of African-Americans. And there's also a segment talking about how his daughters have taught him about you know, women's issues and women's inequality. And, you know, it's frustrating sometimes when people say that they needed to have a daughter to understand because you have a mother and you are surrounded by women in the world who are human beings who should be enough to tell you and prove to you that they are deserving. But that being said, it's still useful and welcome when someone becomes more aware because of of their daughters. And this is a small snippet of the story. Bennett is committed to destroying sexist categorizations and glass ceilings and has taken up the cause of women's athletics as a vital piece in closing the gender equality gap. Quote, I think in this generation, I think the male athlete has to support the woman athlete. If we want to see their sports propelled, if we want to see them get paid equally, then we're going to have to bring up the issues and be like, women are just as important as men when it comes to sports. A lot of people don't believe that. He also talks about looking at his daughters and realizing that women already face a greater challenge than men, but then you add in that they are black women and girls and they will be especially challenged, that he wants to inspire them to be impactful and make a difference and be seen as more than just their color or their gender. Uh, He also noted that when people found out he had daughters, they would say, you better get a gun instead of saying how exciting you could have a great athlete or a great business owner. And they don't say things to empower the kids um, because they're girls instead of boys. And that really changed his mindset. So it's a really interesting story. I love his perspective and his thoughts. It's a very thoughtful and introspective person. And he talks about needing to be uncomfortable in order to see the way things are for others and That's a huge thing right now, empathy and understanding the condition of others and how we can all work together. So I think it's a great story. Check it out on The Undefeated. Again, it's Michael Bennett is an activist disguised as a football player. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said.